Apostle Paul, for the man that you made him and the message that you gave him. And particularly, Lord, as we look at Titus in the coming months, Lord, we are thankful for the message that you gave the Apostle Paul to give to Titus, to give to the people of Crete, to ultimately give to us, your saints at Makahilo Bible Church. And I pray that we would indeed receive with humble, obedient, and submissive hearts the message of the book of Titus. The call for us to be lights in a dark world. The call for us to be that light by being dedicated to your truth, by dedicating ourselves to love and good deeds. Please help us receive your words now. Bless my explanation of your inspired text. In your son's name we pray, amen. You may have a seat, and as you have a seat, please open your Bible to the book of Titus. We will be looking at chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 this morning. Um, as I fill in for Pastor John in the coming months, we are going to be going verse by verse through the book of Titus. And so what we're going to do this morning, kind of a two-fold purpose, I'll exposit verses 1 to 4, and in the process I'll also talk about the book as a whole. I want to introduce the themes and purpose motifs of the whole letter. Um, this works out nicely because of all of the introductions to Paul's letters, Titus has a unique amount of theology embedded in it. Now, one way you could look at it is that in between Paul saying his name at the very beginning, and then in verse 4, Paul saying the name of his recipient, Titus, there are a lot of words in between those. Indeed, of all of Paul's letters, the second most, only Romans has more words between Paul's name and the recipient. The implication of that is that Titus has a ton of theology embedded here in just the greeting that Paul gave to Titus. And Paul, very nicely, he introduces all of the major themes of the book in these couple verses here, the greeting to Titus. So let's go ahead and read those first four verses. Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father, in Christ Jesus, our Savior. Uh, I, I have a theory that Zen Buddhism, Roman Catholicism, legalistic fundamentalism, communism, you could throw some other ones in there. My theory is that all of those come from the same basic human error. They come from, the, indeed, a correct assessment of how this world is, and then they delve into error from a, a human temptation. And it's this, it's summarized, I think, so perfectly and aptly by T.S. Eliot. He says this, groups like this, false teaching like this, what they do is they, they constantly try to escape from the darkness outside and within by dreaming of systems so perfect that no one will need to be good. That's what all of these are. They correctly look at the great evil and darkness 
both around us in the world and indeed in our own souls, and they despair. They despair that they themselves or any other human could actually ever be good, could actually ever be trusted to be a truly righteous person. And in their despair, they substitute true goodness for adherence to some superficial laws or superficial structure. In Zen Buddhism, you reach enlightenment and selflessness through the correct practice of rituals. That's all that stands in the way of you being a selfless person is you just practice the right meditations frequently enough. Roman Catholicism, Catholicism, it's the same thing. They don't trust the people to actually follow Christ. And since they can't actually do the important things like love the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and love their neighbor as their self, uh, no one could do that. So how about you just keep these seven sacraments and basically just confess frequently. You just go in to a little room and you say what you've done wrong and all is forgiven. Anyone can do that. No one actually has to be good for that. Just keep some basic rules. Same with legalistic fundamentalism. You don't trust the people to actually be loving, thoughtful, modest, pure. No, you don't trust them to do that. So you have to give them these elaborate rules about how long their dresses can be and what kind of media they can consume. That's the only way to ensure that this won't be a uh, just a mess of evil. We have to impose these rules. Of course, that's communism as well. The idea that you could somehow create a perfect economic system where there will no more be uh, competing human desire. No one will have any other reason to crush another person, so everyone will be happy and good. Indeed, in all these systems, it's thinking of the perfect rules, the perfect structures, that you don't even have to have good people. They will simply do the right thing by means of the system. In stark contrast to these false teachings and many others, stands alone Protestant Christianity, which has the audacious claim that its adherents can actually be good. They can actually be trusted to follow Christ, to be like their Savior. And in that way, they don't have to be given thousands and thousands of specific rules to do. No, but because they have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, they can legitimately do good things. Again, the, the way you enter this institution of truly good people is not by being truly good yourself and now you have merited entrance. No, everyone who joins this institution of good people enters as a depraved evil person. But upon entering... God supernaturally takes us evil sinners and he makes us good. None of us, of course, are perfect. All throughout our lives, we will still sin. But you also must understand that you, as a believer, can legitimately do good. You can legitimately make decisions that please the Lord. That statement in Jeremiah about all righteous deeds being filthy rags, that's of unbelievers. You, as one of God's children, you can legitimately please him by being good. And you can do genuinely beneficial things for the world, for your fellow believers, for even unbelievers, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through you. And indeed, that's the point of the book of Titus. Titus uh, Paul, in writing to Titus, was telling Titus to institute local churches on the island of Crete an island that was defined by false teaching and immorality. And unlike Galatians and Romans, in which Paul 
focuses very heavily on how someone becomes a Christian, on salvation, justification. Titus is focused on those who are already saved, dedicating themselves to sound doctrine and therefore righteous living and good deeds. Basically, the message of Titus is this, that the antidote to a society defined by deception and evil are churches defined by truth and goodness. Indeed, there on the island of Crete, there would be a mass of darkness, a mass of evil. But within all that evil, all that deception, that foolishness, there would be like an island itself, the church, full of light and truth and goodness that would shine light into the darkness in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation. And so as we look here at verses 1 to 4, and indeed the whole book, what I want to do first is talk about that purpose of the book. As I put it just now, point one is this, an island on an island. That is what Paul is telling Titus to do, saying to foster the churches there such that they would be an island of goodness and righteousness and light in the midst of an evil society on the island of Crete. And so... We will first look at this island on an island, talk about the island itself, Crete, then talk about the island, the church, what it looks like in Paul's mind, and then from there, the following two points, we'll discuss how the church becomes that light, how we can truly be an effective island in the midst of wickedness. All right, so point number one, again, an island on an island. The church is surrounded by darkness, but it has light, stability, strength, goodness. But let me talk for a second about the island of Crete. The island of Crete, uh, compared to us, it's a pretty big island. Uh, It's situated south of Greece and west of Turkey. Um, It is 3,200 square miles. For reference, the big island is 4,000 square miles, so about 80% of its size. And then us, we're way down at 600 square miles. So not too much different than the size, but when you compare it, it's a little bit bigger. And Crete, kind of like Oahu, it had many different cultures and nationalities dispersed all throughout the island. And then even particularly, there were all these different cities throughout the island. And each of these cities had their own distinct culture and society. They weren't really a united island. Uh, And by the time that Paul is writing to Titus on the island of Crete, uh, Crete wasn't a very influential place though it had once been an incredibly influential place. Way back in about 1400 B.C., Crete had been the home of the Minoan dynasty. The Minoan dynasty has the claim as the first advanced civilization in Europe. Basically, it wouldn't be wrong to say that Crete was the birthplace of Western civilization. But again, here in the first century, when Paul is writing to Titus, that was a long time ago. A long time since that civilization had fallen, many different countries and nationalities had invaded the island, so it was no longer, you know, defined by its uh, advanced culture. No, now it was a bunch of uh, conflicting nationalities, conflicting tribes and cities. It was full of immoral people. It was a place that you didn't really want to stop by if you didn't have to. Uh, Kind of like Oahu. 
Uh, it had a large population of soldiers, though, and different than Oahu, these soldiers were mercenaries. So that's a good thing about living on Oahu. All of our soldiers are good. Uh, not, not mercenaries, not for hire. Um, and then, as I said, it was known for its immorality. These mercenaries, as you might guess, they weren't very trustworthy people, and the people who were able to hang out with them were not very trustworthy either. As Paul says in chapter 1, verse 12, Cretans are all, always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And what's clear from Paul's instructions to Titus in this book is there is also a good amount of false teaching of people who were saying that they were representing Christ or Paul or something, but were actually teaching a different gospel. All those details in mind, you can see the situation for the believers there on the island of Crete. Of course, in some ways, uh, dissimilar to what we experience on Oahu. But really, Paul's instructions for the Christians on the island of Crete are quite relevant for us Christians on the island of Oahu. There's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of parallels in the life that they had and that we live. That's the island of Crete. And let's talk about the island within an island, the church. The first thing that I want to say about the church on the island of Crete is that the church there, like every other church, it was an institution. The church of Jesus Christ is not just an amorphous blob of individuals who happen to hold to generally the same teachings. No, it's an organization that has an appointed structure instituted by God. And you can see that, uh, you can see that inferred in the very first line, verse sentence, of Titus chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. The leader of the church there in Crete and indeed all over the world is God himself. And it is our Savior, Jesus Christ. They are together the one leader and Savior of the church. And it is they who sent Paul. Though Paul is the one bringing the message to the church of Crete about how they should live, he is merely representing God. And Paul's saying that he's a servant of God. He means that he, is, he, owes a, he owes exclusive duty to God alone. He only speaks for him. And accordingly, being his servant, God has sent him as an apostle. Apostle means messenger. God has entrusted Paul with a message. And Paul has taken that message, and here in this book, he's entrusting it to, as you can see in verse 4, to Titus. My true child and a common faith. We know a bit about Titus from the rest of the New Testament. We know that Titus, at this point, had probably been Paul's companion for about 20 years. The other important thing we know about Titus is that he was a Gentile. And unlike Timothy, who was also a Gentile, but Paul had Timothy be circumcised so as not to be a stumbling block to the Jews, Titus, Paul specifically, did not have him be circumcised. He wanted with Titus to enforce the principle that you do not have to be circumcised in order to become a Christian. And so it's significant here that Paul in his letter to Titus, which inevitably would be read by others, Paul is establishing and upholding Titus as a true representative and disciple of him, a true child in their common faith. Titus is no less a representative of Paul's apostolic truth just because he's a Gentile. No, he holds the faith in common, and he is someone that should be imitated. And so as you can see in verse 5, Paul says to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete, 
so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So to recap a little bit, what's the structure of the church? Well, God is at the head of this institution, this institution of light. God has sent Paul with a message to proclaim about how this church is to function, what they are to dedicate themselves to. Paul then, on the island of Crete, has entrusted his ministry to a man, uh, someone who would be known as a bishop, Titus. And Titus then was to go around to the various cities and establish local churches. He was to appoint elders there in those local churches. And then in verses 5 to 16, Paul gives instructions for Titus to give to these elders of how they are to model righteous behavior to the church and how they are to teach that righteous behavior. These elders then, as you can see in chapter 2, they are to then teach the older men. In verse 3, we see they also teach the older women. The older women then, they teach the young women, verse 4. And also in verse 4, the young women love their children. And then finally, the young men, they are also taught by the elders. This light in the midst of darkness, this church, it's an institution that has a structure. God, of course, ruling the church as he does now. The Apostle Paul bringing his message. Though we don't have apostles anymore, we do have his message. Paul appointed someone who functions somewhat as a bishop, though that role has likewise passed away. The role that endures, though, is that of the elder, and that of the elder instructing the men and women in the church. What's the, what's the application of all this? Summarize, the solution to false teaching and immorality present on the island of Oahu, what's the solution to that? Local churches that preach the truth and are dedicated to good works. That's the solution. Hawaii Kai Church, Kailua Baptist, Grace Fellowship, Island Grace, Aea Heights, First Baptist Church of Haleiwa, Makakilo Bible Church, and other faithful churches. We are God's instituted program to push back the darkness, to remain an island, a beacon for light in an evil world. This should be encouraging to you. As we're here in a, met, in a month where every store that you go into, every website you visit, there's a message shouted at you that you are despicable because you do not accept that which God calls an abomination. And they shout this at you, what? In the name of the chief of all vices, pride. Do not be discouraged in the midst of such wickedness. You are not impotent. You are not powerless. There is something that you can do. And what is that? It's simple, it's basic. It's you be a faithful member of Makakilo Bible Church. That is God's method of pushing back the darkness. It's not glamorous, but it's the only way that works because it's the only way that God is behind. The church is the only institution that Jesus has, says, has said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Listen, electing the right politician, instigating an effective boycott, posting the right podcast clip. None of these are going to make evil people good. Winning the argument really isn't going to do much to push back the darkness. You know what actually pushes back the darkness? You dedicate yourselves to the truth of Scripture. You love that truth. And in loving the truth, you be a genuinely good person who does good to your neighbors, to your family, who lives a wholesome life. 
that will bring real change. You know why? Because the people around you whose lives are total disasters and are lost in their sin, they will see your good deeds. And you will have an opportunity to tell them the truth of Scripture. A truth which shines as truth, which has the resonance of truth in the midst of all their ignorance and deception. You can do something against the darkness. You can make yourself a member of God's now 2,000-year-old institution, the local church. And your local instance of that is Makakilo Bible Church. And your contribution, your dedication to the truth and to doing good deeds, it makes our light of a church shine brighter and brighter. And so again, specifically, how do we do this? How do we be more brilliant lights in this dark island? Two things. We dedicate ourselves to correct teaching and to correct conduct. Point two is this. Teaching, that is good for you. That's what you need to receive, love, embrace. Teaching, that is good for you. You can see Paul discussing this in verse 1, where he says that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Faith there referring to trust, saving trust, and their knowledge of the truth. The way that Paul is going to talk about this knowledge of the truth throughout the book of Titus is by a phrase, sound doctrine. And sound doctrine literally just means healthy teaching. That's what sound means. It means whole, well, without defect. And doctrine is literally just the Latin word for teaching. Healthy teaching is what we need to be lights in a dark world. Because just as eating healthy food it's going to have an effect on you. It, it will make you well. It will keep you healthy. So, receiving healthy teaching, whole teaching, sound doctrine, will have a beneficial effect on your life. And vice versa. Be not deceived. A person who listens to false teaching, to perversions of the truth of Christianity, it will not be without consequences. They will see the effects in their own life in the same way as if they ate diseased, diseased food, unwhole food, it's going to affect their body. So if you listen to unsound teaching, unwhole teaching, it will harm you. You cannot escape it. Look at, at chapter 3, verse 9 of Titus. There, Paul describes the type of teaching that Titus is to avoid. He says, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. Why? They are unprofitable and worthless. They're empty. If you listen to false teaching, if you hold to lies, to the wisdom of the world, it will harm you. It cannot build you up. It can only bring you down. Ideas have consequences. If you question that, just look at the rates of substance abuse, Look at the failed marriages, look at the estranged parents, the lonely people, look at all the suicides, and tell me that it does not matter what you are taught. Every day we see the consequences of the lies that our world teaches. Even, indeed, look at the churches that have false teaching and see the consequences in the lives of their members. What you believe matters. What teaching you receive matters. As Carl Truman has said, the best arguments for Christian morality are the ruined lives of those who ignore it. For a somewhat brutal example of the effect of unhealthy teaching, 
Uh, consider the radical feminist Shulamith Firestone. She was indeed a part of this movement, indeed called the radical feminists, and she was the very most extreme and ardent supporter of this movement. She taught very explicitly and very forcefully that women would only ever be free and happy when they were severed from all relationships. When no one depended on them and they depended on nobody, that would only be when women could be free. And such an extreme teaching led her to, say, propose the unthinkable, that society can only be happy when women no longer bear children. She was an advocate of eventually figuring out some way for all children to be born in a test tube. That, she believed, was the only point when women could be happy, when no one counted on them, when they didn't need anybody because they had a child to raise. That's only when they could be happy. And that's evil. It's ridiculous. And you know what? She bore the consequences of that teaching. You know what happens if your whole life you say that relationships only hold you back? That humans will only be free when they have no dependency either direction? You'll be alone. Shulamith Firestone became mortally alone. As she got into her 50s, she became ill. And um, at first she had some acolytes who would kind of keep her health up, but they were just acolytes. They left. She was alone. She died of starvation in her apartment. No one knew that she was there for days later. You reap what you sow. That's an extreme example, but it's the same with any lie or deception. If you embrace it, if you believe it, because it is false, it will harm you. It will bring consequences into your life. Do not listen to it because it makes you feel good. It tickles your ears. False teaching is poison. And in the other way, correct teaching, the truth, it's medicine. It heals. I don't need to give a particular example of that. You can look around you. Look at the people you admire in your life. The godly, trustworthy people whose families are whole, who are admired by their co-workers and church. And look at the doctrine they hold to. You can see the, the positive examples of listening and holding to sound doctrine in their lives. And so it is in Titus 1 verse 9 that Paul tells Titus that the elders need to teach sound doctrine. An elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. And so likewise, the older women, they are to dedicate themselves to teaching what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Titus chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. So to be lights, to be an island on an island, we need to dedicate and embrace sound doctrine, healthy teaching. It will be good for us. It will bear fruit in your life. And as you hold to that sound doctrine, and it makes you well, you then will be able to do good deeds you will be able to go out and live a righteous life. And so point three is this. You need to also embrace teaching that does good. That's what sound doctrine does. That's what listening to the truth of Scripture, to the gospel does, is it results in you living a godly life. You can see that's what Paul says in chapter one with just those few words. He says, their knowledge of the truth 
which accords with godliness. The point is, is that if you say you have a knowledge of truth, but it does not result in godliness, you don't really have a knowledge of the truth. That word there that we see in the ESV as godliness, uh, it would really be better translated as, as piety. Really all it means is religious devotion. It was a word that would have been used of, uh, positively amongst pagans, amongst Jews. It just meant that if you were a pious person, it meant that whatever religion you had, you were reverent of the teachings, and therefore you, you listened to the teachings. You obeyed it in your life. Paul, of course, he's not okay with any kind of piety. He's not saying that uh, whatever religion you have, just make sure you're pious at it. No, it matters that you have the knowledge of the truth. But just as much as it doesn't just matter the good deeds you do, it also matters the things you believe. So vice versa holds true. It doesn't matter if you believe the right things, if you don't do the right things. Correct beliefs and correct living go hand in hand. Good teaching and good living go hand in hand. You cannot separate the one from the other. And this can be somewhat difficult for us as Protestants to think about, to think about good deeds and good works. Why? I mean, probably about, I don't know, 60% of the time that we're even using the phrase good works and good deeds, it's to do what? It's to say that that's not how you're saved. That's why we bring that up. You don't merit your salvation, and that's absolutely true. But just because good deeds don't fit in the earning your salvation category doesn't mean that they're bad, doesn't mean that they're not a big deal. No, good deeds, righteous behavior, is vitally important to the gospel itself. How so? Well, first of all, when we say a person isn't saved by good deeds, we're not saying that there are these people who are genuinely loving God and loving their neighbor, and God just says, I don't care about that. No, when we say that good deeds don't save you, we say that these evil deeds, which have the veneer of goodness, don't save you. That's all they do. They're whitewashed tombs. No, and the reason that we need saving is because we never do anything good. Because all we practice are evil deeds. And we try to cover that with some superficial rule keeping. No, we need to be saved because we do not do good. And when you are saved, you are not merely forgiven your evil deeds. No, but Christ's righteousness, his good needs are imputed to you so that God sees you through Christ's righteousness, which he himself accomplished and demonstrated in his life on earth. And now, as Christians, as people who have had Christ's righteousness imputed to us, the reason that we are saved, in a sense, is to now do good deeds. I can't say it any better than Paul does in chapter 2 of Titus. Look there, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. If you want to think of just a few verses that summarize the message of Titus, it's these. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul says right there is that you were saved to become a righteous and good people. 
to be in the midst of this evil and wicked, depraved world, people who have been purified by Christ, who not only do good things, but are zealous for good works. We as Christians, it's not merely that we do some good deeds out of a burden that's been imposed on us. No, we love to do them. It's our life. We love to do good deeds. We love to bless others. We love to give glory to God by doing things that are beneficial to our brothers and sisters and indeed even to non-Christians. And the reason that we love good deeds so much is because Christ has demonstrated to us the ultimate good deed and the ultimate character of goodness. Look over at chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. The reason that we love good deeds now, the reason that we love sacrifice and selflessness, it's because that's what our whole life is about. We were saved by Christ's ultimate good deed, his ultimate act of compassion and kindness, of self-sacrifice. He gave himself for us when we were his enemies, and he saved us, and he gave us new life. And the reason that we are now dedicated to righteousness and good deeds is because that is what defines our Savior. It is a paradox, a, not even a paradox, it's a full-on contradiction to say that you love Jesus, but then not be enthused about keeping his commands and living a righteous and good life. That's impossible to say. Those things are what defined his life, goodness and righteousness. And all the laws that we receive... They're just telling us of how to be like Jesus, how to live our lives like he did. To say that you love Jesus, but you don't care so much about living a righteous and good life, that's saying like, oh, I like Beethoven. Don't care much for his music, but yeah, he was a good guy. It's what defines him. And you, Paul, he says this emphatically in chapter 1, verse 16. He says this about the unbelievers, the false teachers. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They have the knowledge, and it sounds like, from what they say, from what they profess, it sounds like, oh, they're followers of Christ, until you look at their life. And then you conclude definitively, no, you do not know Christ. You do not know the epitome of righteousness and goodness. Why? Because you are a wicked and evil person. It would be impossible that you know and love the Savior when you live your life in such a despicable way. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Their embrace of false teaching has made them incompetent to do anything good. Again, all they can do is, good deed, is evil deeds with the veneer of goodness. It's not us, though. We know the gospel. We know the truth. Therefore, we live righteous lives. We dedicate ourselves to good deeds. And in the book of Titus, to conclude, in the book of Titus, the motivation for this dedication to sound teaching which results in good deeds, it's hope. The hope of eternal life. That's what Paul says there in verse 2. And hope of eternal life which God 
who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. That's the question for us as we decide, should I do the hard, uncomfortable task of dedicating myself to the truth of Scripture, of submitting to sound doctrine, and of therefore dedicating my life to self-sacrifice, to good deeds for the benefit of others? Should I do that? Well, the question is, how sure is your reward for doing those good things? How sure is God going to reward you for giving of yourself to help others? Paul says in verses 2 and 3 how sure it is, what kind of guarantee there is that those who do good will be rewarded. First of all, this is how guaranteed it is. God promised this before the ages began. Before the world existed, he said that he would reward his saints with eternal life. Then if God had established that before anything else existed, how could that possibly be lost? That wasn't a a development six steps down the road that he would give people eternal life. No, it's been the basis of the universe from the beginning. So of course God is going to fulfill his promise to give his children and his elect eternal life. What's the second reason we can know our reward is sure? Well, the God who promised it, he can never lie. And in fact, the word there in Greek, it's, the, it's basically an adjective, the not lying God. It's impossible for him to lie. Unlike the Cretans who are known for always being liars, that's not God. Indeed, it's in his very nature that he cannot but tell the truth. He is the definer of truth. He is the only one who knows truth. And so therefore, when he promises something, there's no way that it could waver. As Paul says elsewhere, let every man be considered a liar and let us uphold the truth of God. The third reason why you can have hope, why you can be motivated to push ahead with good deeds, knowing that in the Lord you will receive recompense and glory for the good things you do. Verse 3. It's that God has manifested this hope. He has followed up on his promise in the word that Paul has been entrusted to preach. Basically, God, before the world began, he promised hope of eternal life. And here in Paul's ministry, and even here in the book of Titus, God is speaking to his people, and he is reminding them of his promise of eternal life. The book of Titus is itself I guarantee to you that God is going to reward you. That he sees your labor and toil in his work and he will give you a fitting reward. He speaks to you. He reminds you of his promise that he has not forgotten you even here in the book of Titus. In his declaration to you to dedicate yourselves to good works that in the end you may receive eternal life. So let us now pray that throughout this week, Throughout the weeks and months ahead, that's what we do. We would embrace God's truth. We would dedicate ourselves to being lights in a dark world. And anytime you see some act of evil, some act of wickedness in your life this week, don't be discouraged. Just again, rededicate yourself to the ministry of Makakilo Bible Church, of being a faithful light and witness to our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Lord, help us do that. We thank you that you have saved us. 
Lord, we were evil and miserable and wicked. And we deserved to reap what we sowed. Thank you for being gracious to us. For reaping what we sowed, Lord, by receiving our judgment. Thank you for giving us new life through your spirit. Thank you for letting us know true freedom. True freedom is to follow you, to be your slave. Help us know that more and more. I pray that this week we would be able to bear the fruit that you have prepared for us, the good deeds that you have prepared for us. And when the time comes, Lord, give us strength. Give us strength to say no to our flesh, to the old man, and instead love your truth, your goodness. In your son's name we ask all this. Amen. Amen.